The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. Political scientist Seymour Martin Lipset once wrote, A person who knows only one country doesn't know any country because you're not sensitized to what is unique, what is different, what is special about your country. Brazil offers a parallel to the United States because it has a populist president who is active on social media and has been indifferent to the pandemic and hostile to the environment. But it also has differences in culture, development, and religion. The past week has largely been about the American presidential election for me. Like most of you, my my attention was focused on the results until this past weekend when Joe Biden was officially declared the winner. But now I am exhausted talking about American politics. So I invited Amy Erica Smith to discuss politics in Brazil. She is the author of Religion in Brazilian Democracy, Mobilizing the People of God, and a professor of political science at Iowa State University. My conversation with Amy Erica is about Brazil, but in many ways it is illuminating about the United States. Everyone will have theories about American politics after a consequential election, but an examination of other countries tests those assumptions in very different contexts. Populist leaders have found success in so many parts of the world, but Jair Bolsonaro feels eerily similar to Trump in so many ways. And yet, Bolsonaro is a Brazilian invention, Brian Winter writes in Foreign Affairs. He is a product of the singularly awful economic and political crisis the country has endured over the last decade, and just as important of Brazil's long tradition of being ruled by conservative white men of military background. The most striking of those similarities and differences is the way religion has interacted with politics. Amy Erica's research is, is amazing. She is a political scientist, political scientist, but also part of a new generation of scholars who combine field research with statistical analysis to give anecdotal observations new meaning. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation. We talk about Jair Bolsonaro. We discuss the Workers' Party. We talk about Catholics, Evangelicals, and Pentecostals, and, and no more delays. Here is my conversation with Amy Erica Smith. Amy Erica, welcome to Democracy Paradox. Hi, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. 
I was always taught never to talk about religion or politics and your research interests explore both that that's very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of fun. (laughs) Obviously your book is called religion and Brazilian democracy, mobilizing Mm -hmm. the people of God. We're obviously going to talk about religion in Brazil, but I'd like to introduce Brazil as a country just in case some people might be unfamiliar with their politics. So there's a lot of parallels that I notice between Brazil and the United States. Mm-hmm. Their current president, Jair Bolsonaro, has been called a Trump of the tropics. Can you describe some of the similarities, and, but also some of the differences between the politics in Brazil and the United States? Okay, so if you want to take just the two presidents in uh, Brazil and the U.S., Bolsonaro has deliberately aligned himself with President Trump. He's a big fan of President Trump to the point of actually just yesterday or maybe Friday that he was giving a a speech in some small venue. And he says, I am not the most important person in Brazil, just like President Trump is not the most important person in the world. The most important person in the world and in Brazil is God. So it's like Jair Bolsonaro has a hierarchy of the world in which there's God, President Trump, and then himself in Brazil, Uh, (laughs) which is kind of amazing. So Jair Bolsonaro is a huge fan of Trump, and he's part of sort of an administration, a coterie, uh, everybody in his And in his milieu is a huge fan of President Trump. In fact, the person who is currently his foreign minister, Ernesto Araujo, he had been, he was a longtime civil servant within the Foreign Service, but had always been sort of a fringe figure within the Foreign Service, very much outside the mainstream, not really very popular with other Foreign Service officers, just sort of like really on sort of a fringe uh, within the Foreign Service until President Bolsonaro is elected. So Ernesto Araujo, one of his sort of claims to fame is having written an article about how President Trump was a savior of American democracy. Um, <laughs> so one of the uh, most important ways in which they're similar is that they both really like President Trump. Um, both, both Trump and Bolsonaro like Trump a lot. Bolsonaro is known as a far rightist. He came into office with a combination of sort of a religious vote. There were a whole bunch of different constituencies that supported him. Uh, one of the constituencies was sort of evangelical and Pentecostal groups that strongly supported him, especially certain kind of a politicized rightist evangelical and Pentecostal groups. Of course, not all evangelicals and Pentecostals supported him, obviously. But, you know, something like 70% of uh, evangelicals and Pentecostals in Brazil went to him. It is probably yeah. helpful to note that he also had like 52% Catholic vote, you said in your right. book. Yes. So, but but you really emphasize that it was the evangelical and, and Pentecostal vote that really put him over the top. Right, right, yeah. Would probably have narrowly, he would have narrowly lost the election if it hadn't been for the evangelical. Yeah, so, so he is supported by right-wing groups, by sort of a combination of economic conservatives, pro-military dictatorship people he's known. um, So he has this combination of different groups that all support him. And they're all associated with the far right. 
so I would say, yeah, he is similar to President Trump in that sense as well. So I'd say, and he's also, I guess the other thing about him that, that has led to lots of parallels between Bolsonaro and Trump is that they're both social media presidents. They're both tweeters who have been really highly involved in putting out fake news and also simultaneously claiming that any information that, that they dislike is fake news. It's politics of information and disinformation that both of the leaders are playing with. And I think many people in Brazil see the U.S., the election of President Trump as kind of a precursor for the election of Jair Bolsonaro. And I think now many people in Brazil are wondering if Brazil's 2022 election is going to go similarly to to the U.S. uh, 2020 election in terms of Bolsonaro being a one-term president. Now, obviously, there's a lot of differences between Brazil and the United States. Mm -hmm. There should be. It's a developing country. It's Latin American. One of the things in your book that you bring up that's a very big difference is the way religion exists in both countries. So Latin America is largely Catholic, but evangelism has taken root. And that's really changed politics. But let's just talk about it purely in terms of the religion. Why has this change taken place? Uh, You say Latin America is largely Catholic. It is largely historically Catholic. I mean, it's called Latin America in part. (laughs) The Latin part of Latin America comes from Rome, in fact. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's completely fair to say that Catholicism has obviously taken a step backwards, partly Mm -hmm. due to secularism and partly due to competing religions. Right. But you still note in your book that Catholicism still is a dominant place, whether it's majoritarian or whether it's just a a large plurality. It still has a very significant place within within the country. I don't think a lot of Americans realize how much evangelism has has expanded within the country, right. though, and within Latin America as a whole, right. to be honest. Right. So in most of Latin America, Catholicism was officially separated. So, you know, the, the, most of Latin America, Catholicism was the official religion of state in the same way as they say that the Church of England was once upon a time the official religion. Uh, of England. So Catholicism was the official religion of most Latin American countries up until sometime in the late 19th century. And it remains today the official religion in a few countries, though that doesn't mean everybody has to practice it. In Brazil, for instance, uh, Catholicism was officially separated. There was an official declaration of, you know, separation of church and state. Uh, We're a secular country as of uh, 1889 was in Brazil. There was a constitution passed in 1891. And so since then, uh, there has officially been, you know, total free choice of religion in Brazil and the ability for any religious group to organize and no official support, no official public support for the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, That doesn't mean that there hasn't been unofficial support. And when there was separation of church and state, the Catholic Church continued to be the dominant religion for many decades, uh, an overwhelmingly dominant religion. But then across much of Latin America, beginning in the second half of the 20th century, Protestant evangelism really picks up. It had Protestants entered most of Latin America in the late 19th and early 20th century. Basically, there were missionaries coming from Europe and from the United States who started to enter Latin America. And because there was 
in most of Latin America, freedom of religion by that point, you know, missionaries were free to come and go and do what they want, but they just weren't terribly successful. But then homegrown religious groups, homegrown Protestant and Pentecostal evangelical religious groups start, you know, gradually gaining a foothold. In by like the 1920s, they're gradually developing a foothold. The Assembly of God starts to grow in Brazil in maybe the 1920s. But really, the explosion starts to happen. The, the massive increase in uh, evangelism in Brazil, it starts to happen around 1970. And it happens, you know, it starts at different points in time in different places in Latin America. But it's around then that it happens in most places. So, yeah, beginning about 1970, we see just a, a change, a sea change in a, a rapid increase in the ability of evangelicals to proselytize and to, to convert. Lots and lots of increasing evangelical conversions. And so 1970, the census registers Brazil, you know, as being over 90% Catholic. By, by 2020, or sorry, by 2010... We had, uh, I don't know, some less than two-thirds of Brazilians were Catholic. During that p- same period of time between 1970 and, and 2010, we have uh, the percent evangelical rise from about 4% to about 22% in 2010. Wow. And um, when we get to 2020, the census is still in the field in Brazil. Sometime next year, the census is going to come out, the, the results of the 2020 census. So we don't know what the, I mean, we don't know the official numbers yet from the 2020 census. The census reports religion in Brazil, which it doesn't in the United States. But the official, the numbers will say something like that probably about 20, 53% of Brazilians are Catholic and around 33, 34% of Brazilians are evangelicals. So that's a huge change. And what that means is that this is a very symbolic, we are approaching a very symbolic moment where we are about, within the next few years, about to find a point where Roman Catholicism becomes a minority minority religion in Brazil. It's on the cusp of being a minority religion. Some surveys are already showing that it's a minority religion. It's possible that, I'm not a demographer, and and so I I don't have a personal professional opinion on what the number is, but there are some, I think there's an outside chance that the 2020 census will already show Roman Catholicism as a minority religion. So we are, and certainly within the next decade, it will absolutely become a minority religion, probably within the next few years. What's interesting to me within your book is you emphasize how Catholics and evangelicals diverge on many cultural issues. And Catholics and evangelicals have very different incentives. Catholics are more concerned about losing people to secularism evangelicals are looking to be able to increase, continue to grow their church. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about the difference between the two religions in terms of how they approach social and cultural issues politically? Okay. It does, it's not that everything always comes down to, to simply like wanting to keep people in church, but within Brazil, and I would dare say within many other Latin American countries where Catholicism and evangelicalism are competitors. And in Brazil, they are very much competitors. They have to simultaneously worry about growing membership and also about, you know, promoting the faith, the things that you believe are spiritually important. Evangelicalism, Pentecostalism, and 
Catholicism interpret the Bible differently and they interpret scripture differently. They have different priorities in terms of just politics in general. So within each of these traditions, there's tremendous diversity within each tradition and there's a lot of diversity over time. Of course, Catholicism, we can trace that changing diversity. Perhaps it's easiest to trace it through the Pope. <laughs> uh, that, you know, if we think about Pope Benedict versus Pope Francis, we have a massive change in sort of priorities and, and vision uh, between the two popes. At the same time, there isn't, in the United States, for instance, just because you have a new pope doesn't mean that the Catholics who belong to the faith or even the priests all of a sudden have a paradigm shift change in terms no. of how they approach the religion. It, no, it takes no, a long, not. yeah, it takes a very long time. It, now, obviously you're more likely to be able to draw new people in with the current Pope. Um, some of the others may be drawn away and may move mm-hmm, to, yeah. to other faiths because they feel that it's going mm-hmm. too far. The too opposite. Yeah. 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 Too liberal, but if you take a Downsian analysis, you would have assumed that the Catholic Church and evangelicals and Pentecostals would move towards a center in terms would of- Would all become similar, yeah. Yeah, but it, now obviously there's a difference in terms of how they interpret the Bible, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. There's a difference in terms of just their worldview. But beyond that, there's also a third element, which is secularism over on the right. other extreme that the Catholic church is really getting torn by two different sides. And so they're having to, yeah. they don't want to go too conservative because they're going to drive out certain people, but they don't want to become too liberal because it's going to drive out other people. Right. They're trying Absolutely. to create a stable balance that keeps people engaged while at the same time, doesn't offend too many people. Yeah, um, that is that is absolutely exactly what uh, the Catholic Church is facing. The so the other the other part of this is that historically, sort of leftism within the Catholic Church in Brazil, the Catholic Church moved substantially to the left in the 1960s and really most of all the 1970s in Brazil. The Latin American Catholic Church. Uh, started to move to the left in the 1960s uh, with liberation theology, with the development of liberation theology. Though there is, I mean, the Catholic Church is very diverse. <laughs> there was both a highly conservative and a highly liberal, uh, high, or highly progressive, highly left. Two two different parts of the, the Catholic Church that were almost at war, not true war, but almost at war with each other within the Catholic Church in Latin America. I'm I'm surprised by what you're t- by what you're saying right now. Uh, I'm not disputing it. I'm just surprised mm-hmm. because the Catholic Church around the world has often been very conservative. Poland, they've been siding with the Law and Justice Party, mm-hmm. uh, which is highly conservative and going very far to the right. Mm-hmm. Now, I wasn't shocked that the Catholic Church in Brazil had sided with the left because of the success of the Workers' Party within Brazil. It was a very institutionalized party working with a very institutionalized church. It makes a lot of sense to me that there'd be an alliance between the two, but the Workers' Party doesn't take off in the 70s. It takes a long time for Lula to really build up his base and have some success politically. Why is it that they had success, or why did the Catholic Party or Catholic Church start to shift to the left as early as the 70s? Well, okay, so I mean, it is a product of liberation theology. And liberation theology had some important Brazilian thinkers, but it was, you know, it's much larger than Brazil. And it did not 
really take off in Brazil until the 1970s. So even though it was developed through in the 50s and the 60s, uh, it was really in the 70s that we start to see the development of ecclesiastical-based communities and that the church hierarchy as a whole moves in the direction, in sort of a, not completely, it doesn't completely adopt liberation theology, but it starts to move in that direction in the 1970s. And this is also as a reaction against the the military dictatorship. So uh, there was a military dictatorship in that period, and the military dictatorship came in in 1964. The Catholic Church initially supported the military dictatorship during the early years of the military dictatorship, and this was largely because the military dictatorship built itself as anti-communist. The country had been highly unstable and had had this serious democratic problems in the early 1960s with presidential resignations and um, turmoil and, you know, social, massive social unrest. And then there was this fear of communism. So with all of these things going on, the Catholic Church initially sided with military dictatorship. And then in the 1970s, moved pretty hard against the military dictatorship, at least publicly. There is some evidence that they may have still had some like some institutional safety for the church, even in the 1970s, but they were really, they came out really as very, very opposed to the military dictatorship. And this, I think all of this together pushes the church towards the left because the military was, the military dictatorship is really right-wing military dictatorship. And then uh, by the late 1970s, the church very much has a reputation of being on the side of the oppressed, on the side of the poor, and it has kind of a almost a radical tradition within it that has been pretty um, broadly disseminated within the Brazilian church. And then, of course, we start to see the pendulum move the other direction. And uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who later becomes Pope Benedict, comes out very strongly against liberation theology in the late 70s, early 80s. And we start to see liberation theology being pushed out or not entirely pushed out, but marginalized within the Catholic Church. Not only, again, not only in Brazil, but across Latin America. And yet, this tradition of leftist organizing within the Catholic Church remains an important kind of minority tradition within the Catholic Church. It's not that, it's not that every priest is part of this liberation theology tradition, but most of them have substantial exposure to this liberation theology tradition to this method of socialization, this method of thinking about the church as being on the side of the poor. Mainwaring and Scully have this really great quote talking about the, the impact of the liberation theology tradition in Latin America. The impact of liberation theology across Latin America is in part in that these kinds of ideas influence all sorts of people who are not liberation theologians themselves. So it enters sort of the mainstream thinking of the church. Which means that today there is this sort of pervasive stream within the church. And so advocacy on behalf of the poor is understood as being part of the mission of the church. And I think that's partially a legacy of liberation theology, even though it's not it's certainly not the case that every, it may not even be the majority of Catholic groups today who would call themselves part of the liberation theology school, but it's still there. And in fact, this influences Pope Francis too, this tradition of this book. It's also just hard to change the Catholic Church, because, partly because it's so big, it's got so many people involved in it. People 
associate it very much. You're baptized at birth. You're brought up to adopt the faith. So it's very difficult for you to feel like you want to change. And so I feel like oftentimes there's a lot more ideas within the Catholic Church than what people would assume. Quote in your book, this level of tolerance, particular particularly of internal tolerance, might seem surprising since the Catholic Church is a very large, hierarchical, and non-democratic organization. But that rings true with my experience within the Catholic Church. It sometimes feels like there is a catechism that tells you so many different things that people just tend to believe what they want to believe. And they go to church, and then you've got your own opinions on the side. And I would imagine, based on your book, that that's fairly true with Latin America and Brazil in particular. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so among lay Catholics, there's tremendous diversity in beliefs. And in some sense, the Catholic Church really care. I mean, it's not that they don't care about what you believe, but they want you. They want to keep you, even if you don't agree with all of the dogma, they still want to keep you as a member. And, and there's a there's a sense of identity within being Catholic that is difficult mm-hmm. to disrupt for somebody who was born Catholic. I grew up in, in St. Louis and went to school in, in Missouri where we had a lot of kids from St. Louis there, tons of Catholics. There was a, um, one of my next door neighbor during college was homosexual. Very, very upfront about it. Occasionally I'd see him on Sundays at the Newman center going to church he didn't see any contradiction between the two ideas because it's difficult to unravel the two. And you even note that there are some people who do that within Brazil, that it's difficult to unravel even things that they say explicitly that they disagree with and that they say are wrong and that they're very against. But hey, if you want to come to church, you're welcome at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so the question of homosexuality, of treatment of, of LGBT groups is probably the biggest political distinction that I find in views between Catholics and evangelicals. So, and I find that sexual sexuality politics are really driving a lot of uh, political engagement among evangelicals and Catholics in Brazil. But among Catholics, attitudes on sexuality really are not so attitudes on on like lgbt issues are not so important catholics care a lot about abortion and are minimizing minimizing discussions of lgbt issues whereas evangelicals are talking about both lgbt issues and also abortion it did lots of interview qualitative interviews as well as focus groups and surveys and across various modes of data collection, Catholics are just not prioritizing the church's position on LGBT issues. So while the church has an official position of being homosexual sex is a sin, the church also just isn't prioritizing that within its preaching, within its missionary work within Brazil. Uh, whereas the church is highly concerned, that is to say the Catholic Church is very concerned about abortion and is really strongly emphasizing that as a policy issue. By contrast, evangelical churches are emphasizing, really strongly emphasizing LGBT issues and their opposition to homosexuality. And while they also oppose abortion, there's actually more discussion of homosexuality than there is of abortion. So I have this really interesting 
moment that I discuss in the book where I'm conducting a focus group in a Catholic church. And as I say in the book, um, the kinds of people who go to focus groups in Catholic churches are people who really like their church. <laughs> so these are people, you know, they're, they're the kinds of people who are already involved in lots of activities within their churches. They all are, you know, involved in multiple committees within their churches and do all kinds of stuff in the church. So these are really highly involved, highly engaged Catholics who I'm conducting a focus group with. And I asked them what the church's stance is on LGBT issues. And there's no consensus among these Catholics on what the church's stance is. Uh, somebody's like, yeah, it's a sin. And then somebody's like, well, I don't really think it's a sin. I mean, maybe it's not great, but you know, whatever. Who are we to judge? And then somebody else is like, yeah, I really think that we need to make sure, make a point of, of making sure that, that LGBT people know that they are welcome at church. And like, I asked, so does your priest ever talk about this? And they're like, um, uh, no. <laughs> so they really, they have not heard leaders talk about these issues and they don't, they're not really sure what the church's official position is. And when you ask them what their position is on it, they're sort of like middling levels of some kind of gray area tolerance on this issue in the absence of guidance from their church on this issue. Whereas if you ask evangelicals the same question, they will tell you that homosexual sex is a sin. This is my, the evangelicals in Brazil. The evangelicals will tell you that homosexual sex is a sin and that we can love the sinner but not the sin. And that if homosexuals are going to join our church, then we have to, then, then they're going to have to repent or something like that. And there's none of that happening in the Catholic church, in the Catholic world. Now, you've already mentioned Scott Manwaring which mm -hmm. you really can't talk about party systems in, in Latin America without mentioning mm -hmm. him. He had a book out uh, a few years ago about party systems in Latin America, mm -hmm. where he had an article about Brazil uh, with Timothy Power, Fernando Bizarro, called The Uneven Institutionalism, Institutionalization of Party System, colon, Brazil. You know, so mm -hmm. it's, it's specifically about Brazil. And it makes so much sense because his idea of party system – institutionalization psi is is something that just comes up very much within latin america it makes a lot of sense because of how fragmented the party systems are in latin america but brazil was kind of an outlier because of how strong the workers party was for a long time wendy hunter had an article about that back in 2007 uh, about referring to it as an anomaly mm -hmm. but at the same time the the workers party has obviously had enormous setbacks recently because of because of the sca corruption scandals and everything with Jair Bolsonaro getting elected with a party that was pretty much non-existent has the decline of the workers party somewhat destabilized the party system in Brazil even more than it was before yes absolutely uh, the decline of the workers party has absolutely destabilized the party system in Brazil i Periodically, political scientists attempt to measure this kind of stuff quantitatively. One way we try to measure quantitatively is just by estimating the number of parties. Uh, we have sort of a standardized measure of the number of parties that adjust for party size. Uh, the number of parties in the legislature is higher than it's ever been. It's a lot. <laughs> um, and the, but more than that, in terms of just cohesiveness of parties, level of party identification, level of party identification, has tanked in Brazil. So again, I, I cannot, I can't give you the numbers, 
So, so historically, uh, identification with the Workers' Party, which was as a leftist party, had been the driver for party identification. Almost everybody who identified with a party in Brazil, like two thirds of people who identified with a party, identified with the Workers' Party, and there were so there really didn't have any other competitors for party identification. Well, there were people people voted for all kinds of parties, but they didn't really identify with. So I like I might vote for the PSDB because I like such and such a politician or I think they have good ideas or whatever, but I'm not voting for the party. I'm voting for politicians who are associated with the party. Whereas the PT was the only entity that really had people who were like, yes, I belong to the Workers' Party. And the level of identification with the Workers' Party has just plummeted in the past five years or so. There are many corruption scandals. There was the impeachment of the former president or impeachment of then president, Dilma Rousseff in uh, 2016. And- But that was that was related back to the, the Lava Hato, the car wash scandal. Um, yeah, so- Right. Yeah, that's a complicated thing. Dilma Rousseff was not actually impeached for corruption. There was a popular impression that she was impeached for corruption, but she actually was not. She happened to be impeached at the same time that there was a massive corruption scandal ongoing, and these things were wrapped up together. And people in the popular imagination, they were wrapped up together. But she was impeached. But, the charges on which she was impeached were actually. But was it a case where she was impeached for these charges, but really it was because of the corruption scandal going absolutely. on? And so. People voted based on the corruption scandal, even though the actual proposal for impeachment was right, something else. I think the short answer is yes. In the popular imagination, she was impeached as a result of the corruption scandal. But it's not clear that the legislators impeaching her actually believed that she was guilty within the corruption scandal. And in fact, some of the legislators impeaching her may have been driven to impeach her because they thought that because they themselves were under investigation and they thought that impeaching her would help to shut down investigation of themselves, sort of use her as, I mean, almost a scapegoat or to draw public ire to reduce attention to themselves and also perhaps to be able to control because they were afraid that they weren't going to be able to control investigation, proper investigation. So the extent to which it's not clear that impeaching Joan, that she, she was not impeached for her own corruption though she may have been involved. I mean, the PT itself was certainly responsible for some corruption. There were many other parties that were also responsible for corruption. Um, it, it was definitely endemic within the system. Was, yes. Multiple parties were involved. Absolutely. Multiple countries were yes. involved. Yes, absolutely. So what about the dramatic growth of, of evangelicals and mm -hmm. Pentecostals is happening during the same, same mm -hmm. period? You mentioned that the Catholic Church identified itself largely with the workers party yeah. yes is is part of the reason why there was a backlash against them partly because of the growth of uh evangelism yeah so you know it's interesting the, the history of the pt is typically divided into phases there's sort of a pre-2002 phase there's a, like a pre 1990 or so phase, and then there's a 1990 to 2002 phase, and there's a 2002 to 2016 phase, and then the current. During the early years of the PT, uh, as it's being formed um, in the 1980s, it is very much a um, 
you know, there's a very strong presence of the Catholic left in the Workers' Party. And then as the party starts to consolidate over the 1990s up to 2002, and it becomes more of a mainstream, like center-left party, it continues to have the presence of the Catholic left, but it's not quite as prominent and important within the Workers' Party as it's consolidating and growing and voters and that kind of stuff. Um, and then in 2002, uh, we have President Lula gets elected. And so then the, the PT, the Workers' Party, becomes a, an incumbent party, and it's governing on the basis of you know, just being a competent administrator. And it's very much governing as a centrist party at that point. Between 2002 and 2016, it holds the presidency. And it is, again, it's, it's a center-left party, but known as sort of being a very, it becomes a very pragmatic pro, I mean, almost a neoliberal party uh, in some senses. Which well, was bizarre to think of it as neoliberal because well, it was so far to the left originally right. that it was very socialist, about as far to the left as as you can be to to start out. Well, yeah, I mean, it was. Well, that that's that's a little loaded, but for an American, they would be like, "Holy cow, they're those are socialists." Right. I'm not sure that it was as far left as you can possibly be, but yes, it was. It was a leftist party. I mean, sure. it was a leftist party, and it moves and becomes a centrist party. One that is very much on board with sort of neoliberal economic policies. It is. It also is pro social policy. So it has develops this very strong platform of social assistance, social welfare, called conditional cash. But anyway, so it becomes a centrist party. And during the period that it's a centrist party and that it's controlling the presidency, really there's no difference between evangelicals and Catholics in terms of level of support for um, the PT. So while it was historically associated with Catholicism, it in its period of ascendance, the, the, the zenith of its um, popularity, it is really, it, it's really not a Catholic party in its makeup. It is equally, I mean, you have just as many Catholics as evangelicals. Uh, there are evangelical churches that support Lula. So for instance, the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God um, is really, really, Pro Lula, uh, to the point of, I mean, I quote from like the uh, the, the there's like a zine or like a, a weekly newspaper put out by the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, where they basically call Lula's opponents evil or like possessed by the devil. Um, <laughs> so um, they are, you know, like he gets like serious support from some uh, Pentecostal churches or neo Pentecostal churches, um, and so. During, at the height of the PT's popularity, it is not a Catholic entity. It is a, just a mainstream political party with a center-left orientation, but one that manages to get lots of support from evangelicals. And then when it starts to decline in popularity, yeah, then evangelicals start to turn against it more quickly than Catholics do. But that's something that really happens into the 2010s as it's starting to lose popularity. There's a quote in an article by uh, Marcus Andre Mello. Mm -hmm. This says, under Rousseff's uh, PT predecessor, uh, Lula, Brazil was apparently Latin America's showcase of the left turn done right. That's from 2016, mm -hmm. before right about the point that a lot of the impeachment was, was starting right. to happen and people were starting to turn against the Workers' Party. Mm -hmm. So um, obviously for those who are familiar with the left turn in Latin America, Argentina is demonized oftentimes for the way that 
Kirshner's were actually running Argentina, for instance. A lot of different countries had a shift to the left. Mm-hmm. Brazil was looked on because, like you described, it was more of a centrist party. It was looked on as somebody that was doing it a little bit differently. I'd like to move on to Bolsonaro for yeah. just a moment. The the big thing, and I want to introduce the idea of religion within examining him. He calls himself a Catholic, but he's been identified as an evangelical politician. Can you explain what Bolsonaro's religious identity says about religious identity in Brazil? Yeah, so Bolsonaro is a fascinating case of one of the only, or the only politician that, that is prominent in my memory as being identified simultaneously with the Catholic and the and evangelical churches. Um, so he, like you said, um, people are baptized into the Catholic Church at a very young age. Um, he was baptized as Catholic, was a Catholic um, during, you know, all of his young adulthood. Uh, then he has been attending a, an, a Baptist church for well over a decade. He's now, he's been attending Baptist church. Uh, his third wife, like Trump, this is another way that he's like Trump. He's, um, <laughs> he's on his third wife. Um, and uh, his third wife is, is evangelical. And like, she is a member of the church that he attends. Um, his, a number of his sons have converted to evangelicalism. Um, so he's somebody with lots and lots of family ties to evangelicalism. And then the other thing about him is that he is sort of politically evangelical in some sense, in that he has for many years been a member of the evangelical caucus in Brazil. So the Bancada Evangelica which is, I um, mean, so, so Brazil has lots, in this context, extremely highly multipartisan context. Caucuses are really important because of sort of thematic groups that can unite people across party lines. And the Evangelical Caucus has been moderately important as a political entity for sort of organizing people around certain kinds of social conservative issues. Uh, so he joined the Evangelical Caucus many years ago, despite not being (laughs) and actually identifying as evangelical. And then in 2016, uh, he was baptized in the Jordan River by a prominent Baptist preacher uh, who was running for president. So he has all kinds of ties to evangelicalism, despite continuing to say that he is Catholic. So what does this teach us about Brazilian politics? It tells us, first of all, that (laughs) Catholicism is compatible with lots of behaviors that would not be normally considered indicative of Catholicism. (laughs) The Catholic Church can't kick you out and tell you that you're not Catholic. You can continue to tell people that you're Catholic, even if you're um, not, you're doing lots of things that would not typically be considered to be associated with the Catholic Church. It tells us something about the hybridity of religion in Brazil, that uh, people, religion is this that there's lots and lots of religious switching happening all the time in Brazil. Lots of people have really sort of complicated personal histories and trajectories with religion. Bolsonaro is typical in many ways of people's sort of complex family lives and sort of religious mixing in their own lives. I mean, in some sense, it is a quintessentially Brazilian story to say that, well, yeah, my son is evangelical and my wife, my son is a member of one church and my third wife is a member of another church and I still identify with the church where I was raised. But it also tells us something 
about Brazilian politics. So that's just sort of sociologically, religious mixing is almost the norm in Brazil in today's world with, you know, with all of this religious change that's happened, it's very normal for people to have switching and mixing in their own lives. So it's rare for a politician to say, I am both, to effectively say, I am both evangelical and Catholic or to like be able to play off those two identities at the same time, but it is part of people's lives. Um, and then I guess the other thing that teaches us about politics is that there is space for an evangelical and Catholic coalition. He has been trying to run not as an evangelical or as a Catholic, but as a conservative Christian with leaving the denomination ambiguous. And this, I think this kind of strategic ambiguity, it's because he can credibly claim parts of both Catholicism and evangelicalism, but he's not focusing on either of those identities. He's really trying to focus on sort of a pan-Christian identity. And he ran under the slogan, um, his campaign slogan in 2016 was Brazil above everything, God above everyone. I mean, that is a is a Christian nationalist slogan. It's also, interestingly, not too dissimilar from this, this saying of his the other day about God is the most important. So this hierarchy that he establishes where there's God, then there's President Trump, and then there's Jair Bolsonaro. <laughs> yeah, he has this hierarchy, but he's putting... Christian God at the top and trying to avoid talking about evangelical and Catholic distinction because, you know, it's politically saleable to try to appeal to both sides. Now, Bolsonaro is sort of a populist's populist. He undermines the administration of the government, doesn't believe in the administration of the government in a lot of ways. You wrote a great piece in the Journal of Democracy about how he's been handling the pandemic. I've read plenty of pieces in The Economist and The New York Times about how he's failing to protect the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. These are at least two different crises. I'm sure we could continue to name more. How have evangelicals responded to his approach to handle these different crises and the failures of his ability to actually administer the state? I would say, first of all, evangelical positions on the environment and the pandemic are different. And I should say also, first, before getting started, that describing a single evangelical position on anything is really touchy as much in Brazil as it is in the United States. And actually probably more in Brazil than in the United States because evangelicals are religiously and incredibly fragmented evangelicals and Pentecostals. When I say evangelicals, I'm including Pentecostals within that umbrella. So evangelicals and, and Pentecostals are, are religiously extremely fragmented, and there is not a strong a historical tradition of them being always on the political right. So when I talk about them, I'm always talking about central tendencies. It certainly doesn't apply to all evangelicals and Pentecostals. So evangelical and Pentecostals are, have responded somewhat differently to environmental crises and to the coronavirus. Environmental crises, evangelicals and Pentecostals have generally been pro-science and pro-environmental protection and have seemed in general to derive their pro-environmental protection positions from religious positions. That's not to say, again, not everybody, but at least rhetorically, they have been pro-environment. And historically, there was not a lot of opposition to environmental protection. So. There were lots of problems with environmental protection, 
That is to say that <laughs> reality didn't always meet rhetoric, but rhetorically, <laughs> Brazilians were pretty pro-environment. I imagine it's a lot like campaign finance reform in the United States. Everybody wants it, but <laughs> yes, right, hey, there's exactly. challenges. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is analogous in a way. Yeah, so historically, there's been strong support for environmental protection in Brazil, and evangelicals are part of that, and they can give you religiously, like, religiously derived positions that support environmental protection. And I would say that, that it's possible that this has changed in the past year or so under Bolsonaro, but I have not. As of the most recent evidence that I have, I haven't seen evidence of polarization in evangelicals versus Catholic positions on the environment. As far as coronavirus goes, because it has been so highly politicized in Brazil, people's attitudes about Bolsonaro are influencing their attitudes about him. And so evangelicals have been somewhat more supportive of Bolsonaro. And so even to this day, they're somewhat more supportive of Bolsonaro. So they've been somewhat less pro-restriction with respect to the other thing is that evangelical churches have been really into sort of miracle work. I mean, this is a part of Pentecostalism is focus on, you know, miracles performed by the Holy Spirit. So in the context of religious focus on faith healings and demonstrations of faith by taking risks and things like that, there are parts of evangelicalism and Pentecostalism that have been very much in favor of continuing to meet because this is a demonstration of the faith in God and not being afraid of uh, the coronavirus because God will heal you. Yes, so evangelical Pentecostals have been, have been on the whole pretty supportive of Bolsonaro on coronavirus, and they very much wanted to continue to meet in person and been very opposed to anything that would be perceived as restricting access to physical churches. Whereas on environmental protection, things are much more mixed, and there are not many evangelicals who take the hardcore anti-environment line. So what has religious politics in Brazil taught you about politics in the United States or even other parts of the world? I think one of the really clear lessons coming out of my research is that there's nothing inherent in the set of issues uh, that we associate with the religious right today in, Brazil, in the United States that has to be this way. Or with set of issues associated with any particular religion that has to be this way. So in Brazil, one religious group takes one set of issues and bundles them in one way. A different religious group takes a different set of political issues and bundles them in another way. And then you compare that to, say, evangelicals in the United States, and they bundle yet another set of issues in another way, which is to say that there, there may be a religious tendency to oppose abortion, but it's certainly not the case that all devout Christians oppose abortion. There are devout Christian groups that support abortion rights. And so it's really, you really have to look at the context to understand how a religious group comes to decide what its positions are. And the more you study different religious groups in different places, the more you understand that really there's just extraordinary diversity in how things can be practiced. The notion that in, the, that in the United States, evangelicals are anti-environment, which seems in the current context in the United States to be just sort of, it almost seems natural, I think, to many observers in the U.S. that evangelicals would be anti-environment. If you look at evangelicals in Brazil, the fact that evangelicals are basically pro-environment, even if, you know, they're not always pro-environment in practice, but at least pro-environment in rhetoric and in sort of ideas, the fact that evangelicals are pro-environment in Brazil teaches us there's nothing about 
evangelical doctrine per se that requires them to be anti-environment. Something about the American political context that's leading to anti-environmentalism among evangelicals in the U.S. Will Jair Bolsonaro win re-election? I'm not going to make a prediction. What I'm going to say is that during the time of the coronavirus, he has overseen the development of a huge new public welfare benefit uh, that's currently called emergency assistance that's paying, I guess, the equivalent of 125 US dollars, but this is like a little over half of the minimum wage for a month to low-income workers in Brazil. So, and that's been in the context of coronavirus. He has overseen this new program. The program is not generally considered to be fiscally sustainable, but he really wants to keep it going because it's really popular and it's like his ticket to re-election. The odds are that if he is able to keep it going, he will get re-elected. Right now, I don't see how he's going to be able to keep it going. It seems like it's impo- there is just not enough money in Brazil <laughs> to keep this program going over the long term. There's not enough money in the federal coffers to possibly be able to pay, to keep, to keep this benefit running. And they have, they have basically a, a cap on federal spending that would seem to make it impossible as well. But everybody, like lots of politicians in Congress into your Bolsonaro very much want to reauthorize it and to keep it going in the long term. So if he's able to do it, he will probably get reelected. If he's not able to do it, and if the economy tanks, by the end of this year, GDP is productive to drop uh, 10% in 2020. And in the middle of that, poverty will also decline because of this new social spending, this new welfare program is implemented. If this welfare program is ended and the economy tanks 10%, then we're talking about an extremely difficult re-election cost for Jair Bolsonaro. I would imagine the fragmentation within the Brazilian party system makes it incredibly difficult to predict anything because uh, Bolsonaro himself came not completely out of nowhere, but functionally out of nowhere. I've got a, I, in my research, I went back and found this article I read out of the uh, Journal of Democracy by Wendy Hunter and Timothy mm-hmm. Power back in 2019 about Bolsonaro. And mm-hmm. this quote kind of captures what I was describing. Although this longtime office holder was not truly an outsider, Bolsonaro's fringe status in national legislative politics meant that he was not much of an insider either. In the 90s and 2000s, Bolsonaro became a well-known, though irrelevant, backbencher, building a reputation as a gaff-prone extremist and cartoonish foil for the left. He was a troll before people invented the word troll. He was a right-wing troll before the internet ever existed. And if he can get elected president... I imagine the game's expanded to include just about anybody could possibly get elected in 2022. Mm, I doubt that just about anybody. And I would say that there are, there are Brazilian fundamentals, uh, things like the state of the economy, you know, things that are consistent over time, things like we know that the state of the economy matters. We know that uh, public welfare spending really matters a lot for elections. We know that people's attitudes towards the workers' party matter a lot. And probably these things together explain Bolsonaro's victory in the second round. Anybody who was opposing the PT had a very strong chance of winning the second round election. 
in 2018. So those fundamentals will continue to, I mean, they'll affect people's evaluation now of his presidency. But the first round can be very fragmented. Right. The first round can be extremely fragmented. How did he end up being the choice, people's choice to oppose the PT? That's a complicated story. And there we're talking about religion and people's populist attitudes and democratic attitudes. And yeah, so that's a much, much harder story. Well, I, I think that's a that's a story that will be interesting to see unfold over the next two years. Mm-hmm. Yep. It'll be a story that's just as fascinating as this past 2020 election, in my opinion. So, oh my gosh, yeah. We will see what happens. Brazil yeah. 2022 will be ex- interesting to watch. <laughs> it'll, it'll be another one of those major elections. Well, thank you. Yep. Okay, thank well, thank you, for- you so much, Justin. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Cambridge University Press, who provided a copy of Religion and Brazilian Democracy. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.